do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why am I focused on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. Before we get started, I've been recording these interviews next to my day job and I will definitely continue to do so and release about an episode a month. But at the same time, I would love to take this further, share more interviews. There are many more stories to share on investing in regenerative food and agriculture. More depth, improve the quality, maybe even doing some video series. So I started a Patreon community, which makes it easy to support creators like myself. If these podcasts have been of value to you, and if you have the means, I invite you to support me and make this happen. For more information, please find the link to my Patreon account in the description below. And now, without further ado, the interview. Enjoy! So welcome to this podcast, Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Agriculture as if the Planet Mattered. I'm Koen van Seijen, I'm a Senior Manager at Tonic, a global community of impact investors, and in my spare time I host these podcasts. I started doing these podcasts because I noticed that I was having quite some, at least for me, interesting conversations around investing in regenerative agriculture. And every time after the conversation was finished, I thought, why didn't I record this so I could actually share it with others who are interested in the space? So why regenerative agriculture? Because so many of the current issues we face as a world come together in this sector. And impact investing for me offers a way to scale this sector and reach the potential it has. In these interviews, I'm talking to people who are trying to scale up the regenerative agriculture side, either by increasing the inflow of capital into the sector or by increasing the impact on the ground and scaling up the, the enterprises on the ground. You're going to listen to an interview with Julian Ruijs, CEO and co-founder of the Landlife Company. We talked about many things in this interview, about large-scale ecosystem restoration projects and how to make them viable and how they all start with something extremely small, namely a 10 centimeter seedling that should grow into an enormous tree, but working with local partners and how that's absolutely essential and about the enormous challenge and opportunity of turning the 2 billion hectares degraded land back into productive soil and nature. Today in the podcast, we have Julian Ruijs, co-founder and CEO of the Landlife Company, a company dedicated to make large-scale nature restoration projects viable. Welcome, Julian. Hello, Kuhn. Just to dive into it straight away, I would love to know why you're active in this sector. Um, you had a very successful career in corporate in the corporate world, and you decided to change that. Yeah, it's um, in the end, it's it's all about people. Um, for me, it was also about the people in my life. Um, I am a father of three young children, and uh, yeah, you start to think about uh, their world, the world uh, you leave behind for them. Um, so I think at first I was really excited, uh, about the prospect that one day I could take them to, uh, pieces of land all over the world that this 
organization, our company, had helped um, restore. And I thought it would be fantastic to take them into forests or restored steppes or, or, or deserts um, and, and show basically how I contributed to, to society, uh, to nature, to a better world for next generations. That's a personal story for yeah, the people in my life. But I think also on a larger scale, really, if I think back about important decisions I have to make for the company, I always think back, why did I start this? Um, and it is in the end to make this repairing of the earth possible. So the contribution to a technology or, or to a team of people or to a movement that will make this planet fit again for us mostly in terms of land, so the skin of the earth, to, to heal the skin of the earth, to contribute to make that possible is a very important uh, driver for, uh, for me and my partner, Eduard Zanen, with whom I started this company. And what I noticed, you refer to my previous uh, life in, in corporate world. Um, I used to work in, in energy when I graduated as a chemical engineer. And what I realize a lot now is how different it is to work on something that society wants to, f to, to help fulfill society's wishes versus doing something that society actually um, has a more critical perspective on. Um, for me, that was a big change and a very positive experience. So everybody I talk to about our company, about our activities, about what we do, about our problems... I find people excited to listen and often to help. And I, I hadn't expected that that would be so um, uh, fulfilling and, uh, and exciting. So, um, um, so basically, it's, it's about to, to, to uh, make that possible. I'll admit that I also really like the work. So um, um, I like to travel. I like to go to, uh, to, to new places, to very authentic places pieces of the earth um, and um, I'm also deep inside an engineer and I love to work with technology to think about how we can improve technology um, and as an engineer the whole concept of basically restarting nature to, to, to give it a new kickstart where it has basically um, landed on some dead-end road which is often the case in, uh, uh, in, in deserts and in man-made deserts, if you like. Nature will not come back unaided. As an engineer, to, to help bring back nature and let nature take its course after we've left is something very uh, thrilling and, uh, and, and fulfilling as well. Yeah, thank, thank you for that. And can, can you walk me through the steps that, that you did in, in, in your mind and probably also when you were talking to people when you left the corporate world? How did you end up at healing uh, the skin of the earth in, in, instead of... Uh, renewable energy or mobility etc how did you end up at the at the skin of the earth i think it is uh, more than 50 percent opportunity driven uh, and less than 50 percent if you like strategizing about who you are and what you want but there was a bit of that so i did realize um i was 45 at the time um i did realize that when you die and you look back on your life um that's basically what matters, is what you see and how much you like what you see. So I realized that if I was able, uh, with my uh, experience, my network, 
um, to do something that I felt was not only super exciting, but also something I felt very good about at the end of my life, it was worthwhile to take a shot at it. And I, w- I thought like, okay, if, if I fail, then I've done my giving back for a few years and it'll have cost me some some money probably, but hopefully um, uh, gained a lot as well. But if I succeed, then you've just created the most beautiful thing in your mind. So the so that's that's the strategy part. And that's, as I said, only that relevant. In the end, it's about who you meet and what opportunities cross your path. So I had been working with the director of the International Union of Conservation of Nature when I was a consultant for many years um, on the side, pro bono advising. And when he mentioned he was going to a, um, a foundation to help uh, restoring the earth, it basically triggered this whole concept. And then he introduced me to some people. And in the end, that led to the founding of this company. And so when you when you look at um, what you've been doing so far, it's it's really focused on we need to get CO2 out of the air. And what's the best, fastest and most natural way basically of doing that? How did you end up at um, founding or founding this technology, the cocoon? And, and can you explain a bit more about that? Yeah, actually, the um, the CO2 was never, and I, I would say is still not the driving force behind this um, this initiative, this company. It is a very important uh, collateral uh, benefits, if you like. But basically, it is about healing this planet. And, and I think it's part of a bigger story, of which CO2 is a very important part. But it includes taking the plastic out of the oceans, putting the fish back where they belong, and taking out of the air what doesn't belong there. Um, and and repair this uh, this skin of the earth, and this is this is for multiple reasons. It's um, it's basically that I believe that we uh, as the uh, inhabitants of this planet, and even more the younger generations, for us it is it makes total sense um, to at least um, make the earth that we live on healthy and providing to us and to nature in in general, and not live on. Uh, two-thirds of a planet, which is currently the case, one-third being degraded in terms of land, whereas we need three planets to to survive. Um, we consume three planets and we have only uh, two-thirds of, of one planet. That doesn't make sense. So the the story is much about the planets and um, yeah, the space where you live in. And it's like your house, it's like your garden. You want to live in a, in a beautiful, in a, in a providing, in a healthy space. So that's the, um, the the starting point. How we got to the idea of the cocoon is um, one of the other things that struck me is as a Dutch person, I, I live in a country with a huge um, uh, legacy of um, agriculture knowledge. Um, but very few of my circle, at least, were working in that, in that uh, industry. And maybe it's because the industry has not been very popular over the last decades. It's been seen as part of the problem rather than the solution. Uh, people were going to tech or, or, or investments or, um, or consulting like myself. And, and I, it felt like a waste of, uh, of built-up skills and, and business and, and, and global reputation. So I was really intrigued to, um, to do something um, in this area and to build on the people who have... Um, who have built this sector over all those uh, those decades? I also was intrigued by the um, uh, philosophy, the theory of permaculture, and all the great inventions that had been done in that area. 
there are thousands of, of, of patents out there. Uh, there are thousands of, of, of people, of organizations who have been planting trees everywhere in dry areas and all had their little own ideas and, um, and practices. And basically what we did, um, Edward, my business partner, um, being an, an, an engineer, a designer himself, and, and, and me as a chemical engineer, we put together all those theories of how to plant a tree and we said, okay, there's no innovation there, but we can innovate on a tool that is low cost, biodegradable and scalable that can be used to actually do the planting in the best possible way. So we were thinking about um, take the best practice globally and provide them globally in a way that we can now start to do this at scale. And so that's what the cocoon is, is about. It's how to plant trees, plant and forget. And basically you don't have to, to add any maintenance to it, right? That's the, the main asset and in very difficult circumstances. Um, can you explain a bit where you've started and where you're doing projects now and where the cocoon is of benefit at the moment? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the cocoon is basically a, uh, a paper pulp product that is uh, strong and watertight and uh, it provides all the uh, elements that a, a young seedling in a healthy ecosystem um, receives. So in a, in a healthy ecosystem, you have a larger tree providing some shade. There's some organic material in the soil. There are some, there's some soil life. There's some protection from, from the wind. And what basically what we do is we mimic all of, of the natural uh, defenses for a, a young seedling because where they're planted there it's not a it's not a natural or healthy ecosystem exactly because the desert is too too uninhabited yeah those are absent in a um, in a desertified area so in that desert in the first summer the sun will burn dead everything that is not deeply rooted including the seedlings and what we do is we we are basically an incubator that protects the young tree from those elements in that in, in the first um, six to twelve months, but the philosophy is very much not to just make it survive, but also to stimulate the plant to continue an independent life in nature. So it is all about helping in the beginning, but letting go after the first twelve uh, to eighteen months, and that's very important because we, what we don't want, as you say is that you have to go back to, to, to water or to provide nutrients or, or any other help. The, the approach for us is we plant the tree and we never come back. There is no, you don't have to remove the material, it all degrades. It, it used to be at some point uh, tree material and it will become tree material again after it is degraded and, um, and processed. Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. And that makes it scalable because otherwise we'll never reach the billions of hectares we need to reach exactly exactly that's the only way to um, to use it at large scale that's what we believe the, the technology by the way is is based on very ancient practices so we found practices in in old babylonia in china in india where 
um, people, farmers, used clay pots with cotton wigs. And the clay pots would be uh, filled before the dry season um, and would sweat water, basically, to the soil that the trees, the young uh, fruit trees, would, would use. The wicks, like an oil lamp, would deliver the water drip by drip to the plants. And basically what, we, what we've done is, is use that principle at large scale. So you can't, of course, produce clay pots without a lot of energy and you can't transport them uh, very easily and hand handle them. But our product can be handled and transported and produced um, at low cost, completely sustainable and, and relatively easily. And, and can you walk us through one of the example projects or one of the projects you're most proud of of the last few years where these cocoons and thus the trees have been used in a very beneficial way? Yeah, like you say, it's, um, it's in very dry areas, but sometimes also very harsh areas. So one of the very captivating projects that we have been uh, lucky enough to be involved in in the, in the last year is the, the monarch butterfly breeding grounds in Mexico. Um, it's an amazing story about this butterfly that 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 uh, um, spends the winter in in this mountainous area in the middle of Mexico, and then in spring it migrates towards the United States, and in four generations it reaches Canada, and then the fifth generation flies back all the way from Canada to exactly the same ten to a hundred hectares of land in Mexico. No one knows how that is possible. We not even know that long ago that, it, it, that they do this. It's an amazing story. It's also um, a bit of a sad story because the breeding grounds and also the living uh, uh, grounds of this butterfly are endangered and there's less and less every year. So um, uh, a wildfire erosion, illegal logging um, has caused this uh, the habitat of this butterfly that only breeds in one specific type of, um, of tree has been uh, diminished. And when we arrived there, we saw the area uh, and they told us that um, a few years ago they had planted 100,000 trees. And I, I looked around and I said, well, where are the trees? So, well, only 3,000 trees survived. 97% died. And we see this a lot, um, unfortunately. We see in many projects at significant budgets, people planting trees um, with a passion to bring back nature at survival rates between 0 and 15%. Which is an enormous waste. It's a waste, but it's even more important. It's uh, hugely demotivating for everybody involved. Imagine if you are a volunteer or paid worker to do the hard work of planting and you come back the next uh, fall and everything is gone. Um, and you can say, okay... Yeah, you won't come back the next time. Yeah, and maybe you do, but then, yeah, you have to be happy with 5 or 10% surviving. But also if you are providing the budgets for these projects, you're not going to be super excited to hear that 90% has died. And still we are doing it day in, day out. So when we were there and we, we, we saw the first, second, third results, and now we see 95% plus has survived, there were people there who were crying um, and had like tears in their eyes of seeing the results of, of this planting. And this is something for me where everything comes together. It's about habitats of, of animals, it's about this, the, the health of the planet, of the, uh, of the, the skin of the, uh, of the earth. But it's also mostly about the people who live there who are proud and who want to bring it back and who are personally touched when they see success. Yeah, extremely inspiring. 
And, and when you look at, um, when we become a bit more practical at your, not maybe your daily work, but what have you been busy over? What if you look back one year, for instance, um, and you look at the current moment, what has changed dramatically in the company? I mean, I know you're a startup, so a lot of things have changed, but what is the most important thing that has changed in the last year? So the, the last year, we've really built up scale and, and the scale is extremely small from a global challenge perspective, but it is significant from a startup perspective. So it's very important for us. Um, we have now um, projects in the ground for three years. We have large projects in the ground. We have um, st like structural good results that the people, the partners, the customers we work with um, have seen with our own eyes. And that is something extremely important because the challenge of the business that we are in is that the, the cycles are very long. It'll, it, it takes a season to basically see the result of, the, of your planting and it takes often two or three seasons for your partners, your customers to get enough confidence that this can be used at large scale. Um, you're often spending money that comes from government budgets or philanthropy. So people are rightfully very... Um, careful spending that money um, so you go through a lot of time and working together and also failures um, and then solving them together um, to um, convince people that this is something that really works and is a solution for them over the last year i saw a lot of these moments where customers told me yeah it works we've seen it at large scale we're happy about it we're going to use this now and this is this is now one of the, um, the technologies in our pocket that we can use to fight this problem. And when you look, because I think that that process will only increase because you're doing so many projects that come to that three year or four season mark. When you look one year from now, what do you think is the one thing that would, will have changed your company the most? The topic we work on is a, is a sensitive topic, as, you, as, as, I, as I explained uh, it, it touches people. It's sometimes even a religious topic. And um, our philosophy is that we should not, from Amsterdam, basically ship out the technology and the experts and the people to do projects all over the world. No, we should um, facilitate people all over the world to do this. So our philosophy is very much to grow in the countries where we are active, to set up local companies with local people, with local production, with local skills. Of course, we will um, develop more skills here in Amsterdam and we will make sure skills and, and expertise are shared. But what I hope to see a year from now is that in more than today, we have people in uh, in, in, in many countries, we have um, local presence um, and we are seen locally as local companies because that, I think, is required to be successful in those countries and to be embraced and, and, and to grow very fast. And, and can you tell a bit about um, how that would work practically? Because I, I saw that you are working on a project to also do local production. And um, that's, of course, will prevent shipping cocoons all over the planet. Um, can you explain a bit more how that project, if it succeeds, would work and, and what that would mean for, for the company? Yeah, so today we produce in a uh, factory in Germany, which is fantastic from a technology development point of view, but it's not great from a cost point of view. As you can imagine, all the ingredients are relatively expensive, energy, labor, material, etc. Um, but as you said, 
um, half of the reason to go local is to um, to be local, and it's financial, but it's also about the pride and and building up local knowledge. It's of course also about um, uh, fast supply chains, etc. So we have now a second uh, factory in Mexico where we um, uh, that, that we will start up in the next two months, where we will be able to produce locally, and we are now working. Uh, on a factory in in China, um, every country that is large enough to uh, to justify a factory, we will build a factory. the The first step is that we work with local um, pulp manufacturers, uh, and we have our own process, so we can couple our own process to an existing process. When the volumes go up further, we will start to build a hundred percent dedicated production lines for our products. Extremely interesting. And um, when you, because you refer to that for the next few months, um, but it might be that there's somebody, something else that in the next few months uh, will, will take most of your attention. What will keep you up for the next few months as, as the year comes to a close or the first month of the next year? What's the main um, exciting but also stressful point? I think what is going to be a defining moment for our company is how we deliver on the projects that we have landed. Uh, it is... Um, it's interesting to see the uh, the phases of a startup company. Like in the beginning, you have no idea, you have no clue. You just try everything and talk to everybody, and everybody wants to work with you. You're fine, and, and yes, let's let's try something. Then you get to a point where you have a bit more focus. Okay, this is my market, this is my products. Then you work a lot on your products because it's not good yet. So you have to improve it and improve it and improve it. Painful process um, because you don't want to sell a bad product, of course. Then once your product, you feel comfortable about it. Um, then you need to uh, to sell it. So it's all about sales, sales, sales. Then you have all your sales, you need to produce it. You have to produce it at low cost. But now we're getting to a new phase where we say, okay, we have the sales, we have the product, we have the low cost. But now we have to deliver on a project where we plant uh, tens of thousands of trees in a very remote area. How are we going to ensure that um, this project is going to be successful? Because it's one thing to lose a couple of hundred trees because you were unlucky about X, Y, Z. But you can't afford to have that when you are planting at that large scale. So you need to have in place a lot of operational excellence and, uh, and dedication and focus and be very careful with the delegation to make sure that the, these projects will continue to be successful because those will build the reputation of our company maybe even more than the inventions that you do and the sales stories that you have. So that's one thing that that will uh, get a lot of my and, and, and my team's attention. The second thing is, in this whole process that I just described, and especially in a young company, the, the eagerness to, uh, to become profitable and to prove that this is a, a viable business, one should not overlook the value of the intangibles. So those are the skills and the, and the information, the knowledge that you build up. So it's almost against the trend of, uh, of, of the operations and the sales, etc., at, at the same time, I have to make sure that we as a company have sufficient people and attention to improve the knowledge on restoration. And um, in the end, it is not just about selling a, a great product that you can use to plant a tree, but the purpose of this company is to restore land. So really, our scope should be how can we, over the entire value chain, help our customers to have better results in nature restoration at a lower overall cost. And it starts with, okay, where do I plant which species? Then 
What seeds do I use? What, can I breed seeds that are more likely to be successful in these specific situations? Again, a topic that we have a wealth of, it, of, of knowledge for, of in, in the Netherlands uh, from the agriculture experiences. It's about how do you germinate those seeds? What kind of natural fungi and bacteria uh, is the ideal mix for a uh, specific planting for a specific location on this planet in, in a certain time of, of the seasons? It's about the greenhouse practices. It's about how do you harden these plants in the end. These are not going to be placed in-house. These are going to be in nature. Um, and then it's about the, the planting tool itself, which could be the cocoon, but sometimes it can be something else. And finally, how do you monitor uh, these plants? That entire value chain is still in its infancy. And it is our um, aspiration to be uh, impactful over the entire value chain. That requires years and years of research, understanding what works, what doesn't work, sharing information. But in the end, we believe that that is a process that should be started as soon as possible, not to waste time, because much of this research has, has lead time, of course. So when, when you look at um, the biggest barrier for you in terms of scaling up this regenerative agriculture or ecosystem restoration sector, um, is that that value chain overview, that, that research that has not been done or has not been continued fast enough? Is that what you think is necessary and is essential to, to make this sector reach its potential it, it, it has? Well, if I for a moment only talk about nature restoration and not regenerative agriculture, which we can talk about, but I think it's a bit of a separate story. But if, if I talk about the nature restoration, um, its full potential is basically making itself unnecessary right it's it's basically restoring this planet and then we're done and i think it's important to to think about this this sector this activity as a one-off activity that we do it'll take us decades but still it has to have a start and an end now to get to the end there is no organization not a, an ngo not a company there's not an organization big enough to provide the funding to restore the one billion hectares in all these countries in, in dry areas. But the funding is only a small part. It's even more about the stakeholders. So if you as would have a single company or even um, a number of organizations lead all this restoration work without the strong involvement and the support and excitement and commitment from the people that live in or around those areas, it is likely going to fail and if it succeeds it may in the end get lost again it may be lost that's how we uh, degraded a lot of soils by basically not having people committed to the health of those soils so it's it's our strong um, uh, conviction that we have to involve everybody on this planet to repair these planets it has to be a initiative carried by individuals in the end not only about organizations so one of the big investments we are making is to translate this into something meaningful for you and for me and for everybody we know and for everybody who lives around degraded drylands. Um, that is something that is, uh, has huge potential. We see very positive signs that um, people are interested, are willing to participate, to donate, but also to be mentally committed to doing good for society at large. The United States in 2015, 250 billion US dollars were donated by individuals 
on, on, on many different topics. So you see there's a lot of potential and a lot of excitement to do this. And I think unless we are able to tap into that, um, uh, yeah, those people, we will not be able to reach uh, the targets for nature restoration at least. If I think about regenerative agriculture, again, that's a very different story. We are a little bit active in agriculture, but our main focus, I would say 90%, is today about nature restoration. We do see, of course, that the technologies that we are developing also have um, applicability in, in agriculture. We do have some projects on fodder trees. We have projects on, um, on productive trees. The challenges we often face there is that for the smaller scale projects, people are very interested to use our technologies and, and, and see the benefits. For the really large scale regenerative agriculture projects, the problem is that if you let go of a lot of control that we have currently over the production of these, of these crops, of these trees, the, um, the off-takers of these products, of, of, of the fruits, of the nuts, um, they, they won't be guaranteed anymore how much will be produced in what year and, and, and what the size and the quality of, of, of the, the product is. Because you let nature basically uh, take its course and, and one year will be great, the next year will be, will be different. And what I observe, and in the discussions I had with these large investors, they said, yeah, I've sold my table grapes 10 years out at this amount per year at this quality level. And we need to be able to control the irrigation and the fertilizer and the pesticides and that, that, that to basically make those uh, cash flow uh, streams. I think that's a big challenge. How do we, um, how do we solve that? I don't know. Uh, but that's for us at least one of the limitations that we are running into if we want to use our product at a large scale for productive trees. Yeah, I can imagine. Although it's of course ironic in a in a world where climate changing is is doing a lot of things, people are selling their harvest for the next ten years, while they probably know that in year seven or six or five or maybe in all of those, something terrible will happen or some storm will destroy everything. Um, so it's a very risky move. You, you would imagine they would think more longer term and, and look at solutions like this to, to at least make sure they have a harvest at all. Well, it, um, it's easy for me to say that not being in their business, if I would be in their shoes, I, I, I probably would make the same decisions. It's, you're telling me that my business is in, uncertain and you're giving me something uncertain in return. And then, yeah, why would I think your uncertainty is better than the uncertainty you tell me that I will have in the future? So it is a hard uh, transition. I can see that. Oh, definitely. It, it's, a, it's a really rough one. And, and at the end, that's probably a big link with the um, ecosystem restoration and the nature restoration where you're working in, it's the people that are working on the land and the smaller farmers or that are living on the land or around the land that is degraded, that are suffering the most. And it's not the big landowners, uh, they, they will get away with it. Uh, but it's the people actually on the land working on it that, that are that are going to suffer and are already suffering the most. Yeah, I guess the second thing that we are also um, uh, seeing is that, especially if you plant trees, it takes a very long time to... Um, make a fair comparison current practice intense agriculture versus um, yeah the, the the cocoon technology with uh, without chemical fertilizers etc it'll take years and years if you at, at all can actually do a, a fully comparison to uh, to compare one versus the other so in the end it will also be a little bit about um, um, philosophy and um, 
principle almost. Um, I think it'll, it'll take some people who have a gut feel that this is the right thing to do and that are willing to yeah, be the vanguard and start the projects and it will take years for everybody else to acknowledge or, or not that this is indeed the right way to go. So what, what we are doing is we're we are starting to plant the productive trees, not so much with a view like, okay, that will be the business in the next three, four years, but more like those are going to be really interesting proof points in 10 years from now. Uh, so it's a very long-term investment uh, for us. But then again, none of these problems will be solved short-term, um, so long-term is also relevant. Yeah, for sure, in 10 years we need the technology and, and to, to use it in many other ways we couldn't imagine right now. So, so if you look um, at impact investors or investors in general that want to get into or that have to feel the same urge and need like you feel to restore nature and maybe it's on agriculture side or maybe it's on the, the nature nature side, um, what would you advise them? What would be your principal advice to, to get into this sector and, and to, to do something meaningful with their, their investments? Yeah, I think on a more holistic uh, perspective, I would say it is a cliche, but put the people first. Start from the perspective of the people. And with the people, I mean the customers that are buying the products in the end. Um, what do you think that those people will do in, in, in 10 and 20 years from now? How much will change in the relationship that people have with the food that they eat? What they, will they require to know about it? What will they decide once they know everything about the food that is available to them? Um, but also the people who work um, in the sector, on the farms, um, the people who own the land, the people that regulate the business. The world is changing very fast and uh, it's not in one direction always. But um, in the end, I believe very much that the, the voice of the people is getting stronger rather than weaker. It's not anymore a few people or organizations that will determine what is best for, for society and for the world. It's going to be very much linked into what people at large think and want. So that would be, for me, a big starting point. Um, do you do something that's consistent with the wish of society? It's a very basic principle, but it's, it's, for me, it, 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 it drives a lot of decisions. And I say maybe more specifically... If, if I look at the, um, the land again, the, the topic that we are working on, I see a lot of emphasis on um, getting more out of a piece of land. Um, it's efficiency-based often. It's the big promise of precision agriculture, of Internet of Things, um, more crop per drop and all those things. And, and of course, those are very, very important. But there's also a story about how much land do you have? Where can you make more land available? And I was in the... Um, Kubuchi Desert in, in uh, Inner Mongolia a few weeks ago and this desert is, uh, is, is man-made so actually it's pretty wet and there's a lot of water underneath but the top is all sand dunes so nothing grows because of the erosion. Then when these people started to plant uh, trees, they planted licorice trees, uh, 50,000 hectares, a huge piece of land and once planted in the right way, these, these trees can establish there. And this has now become agriculture land, something very scarce in China. I thought it was a fantastic example of how we can increase the size of our solution rather than just the effectiveness or the efficiency, if you like, of the solution. And the, my hope is that with the, um, reducing erosion of this planet and an increasing restoration of this planet, we can make the earth more providing 
in terms of nature, biodiversity, um, enjoyment of nature, but also in terms of productive land for our food consumption. I think that's an, an excellent advice um, to, to finish off this interview. Thank you so much, Julian, for your time and, and your knowledge today. And uh, I hope to check in with you uh, soon and to, to follow up on, on the, the many interesting projects you're involved in. Thank you, Kun. You're welcome. And thank you for uh, inviting me. You just listened to Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Agriculture as if the Planet Mattered, an interview with Julian Ruys, co-founder of The Landlife Company, working on large-scale ecosystem restoration projects and basically making sure that the trees you plant actually survive. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope to see you back soon. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you and if you have the means, please join my Patreon community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash regenerative agriculture or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.